0: This is the word of God. It was written a long time ago, but it was written for you today. Hebrews chapter 2. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord. It was attested to us by those who heard, and while God also bore witnesses by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. Let us ask His blessing upon His Word. Our God, we do ask that You would give light and light through the work of Your Spirit. You have promised that Your Word will accomplish Your purposes. We have that promise in Isaiah 55, might you fulfill it yes, yet again through the working of your spirit in this time, we pray for Christ's sake, amen. amen. Uh, I mentioned in the announcements that I am, uh, for visitors, that I just got back from school. I'm doing continuing education, which is both fun and uh, challenging i'll leave it at that Uh, i'm in a modular format where i do thousands and thousands of pages of reading and a couple hundred pages of writing and then i go to school and argue with my classmates for two weeks and i've just returned from those weeks of arguments and i say that in the best jest because they're my friends uh, but one of the great joys of that time is where uh, my brothers from all across the country uh, ask how things are doing. We share how each other's lives are. We find out about their ministries. My um, brother in Oklahoma City, or my friend in Jupiter, Florida, or uh, I got a buddy in Green Bay, Wisconsin, and we talk about how life is. Even this morning, I got a text from one of them uh, saying that he was praying for you, because uh, you have to listen to my preaching. Um <laughs> But no, we do uh, encourage one another and edify, and it was fun to be able to sit with my friends and uh, have them ask, how are things going at your church? How's life in South Carolina? And say, so, you know, this calendar year has been staggering. I mean, if you think about the, the, the lifespan of this small portion of God's body here, And then even my time, my tenure as pastor of this church, this calendar year has been staggering. I'm going to meet with these men after having seen plans, roughly, for what we're hoping to build out front. Because as you can tell, there are not enough empty chairs in the building. And this is with like multiple families sick. We're out of space. What a great problem to have being able to tell them about watching kind of radical conversions this year, to see men and women have their lives dramatically changed and to watch how the body is still not fully sure what to do with these folks. How do we handle people who are radically converted and the new life that God has given them and to watch their personalities change and how they interact with people change and all of the great stories And I was sharing with them saying, you know, this year has been in so many ways one of the harder years. I mean, the house flooding, having to rebuild crazy school stuff. But coupled with the most fun. Because we're getting to watch kind of written large in front of us. Even the blind can see God is at work in this church. And I love being able to tell my classmates, look, you need to rejoice in what God is doing. You don't get to see it the way that I do, but I'm telling you, you, my friends, need to rejoice at what God is doing at Christ Ridge. It's really, I mean, you really, friends, you need to rejoice. And their second question, being I'm doing doctoral work and preaching, is, well, what are you preaching on? And they love to kind of antagonize me with that, because I'm one of the few that does Lectio Continua and preaches through book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And they love to just kind of pester me, because that's how we are, we're friends. And I say, you're not going to believe this, but I'm in between series. And they're like, do you, are you okay? Are you feeling well? Do you, do you know what to do? And I said, well, I'm preaching odds and ends. And they're like, what does that mean? And I'm like, well, it doesn't happen very often, but I use pastoral discretion to pick passages that I think are important for the life cycle of our body. And two weeks ago before leaving, I preached on the parable of the day laborers to say, look, it doesn't matter when you're converted you get the blessings of God. If you're converted right before you die, it does not matter. You go to glory. You get the blessings of God. Why am I preaching that one? Well, we got folks being converted. And we're actually breaking all of the statistics. They're not young people being converted entirely. Something crazy like 80% of conversions take place before the age of like 24. It's staggering. It's almost like, you know, growing up in the church is important or something. But this one is not, it's actually the counterpoint to the previous sermon. The previous sermon was the happy side. It was the, look, we're all growing together. Let's be sure that we delight in God's work. This is the other end of the spectrum. It's the warning. It's the danger. It's the much needed call to be careful. There's the old saying that uh, the best way to determine a man's character is to watch him win, not watch him lose. Another way to say it, I've heard, is to, you know, woe to the man who is successful. To be a little bit more delicate and to be a little bit more universal, be careful to the church that is successful. And so we come to Hebrews chapter 2. And I said it follows one of my favorite chapters in the entirety of the scriptures. I, I love how the book of Hebrews starts. Long ago, many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. And he spoke in many different ways. It's fun to think about. He, he used burning bushes. Wow. Wow. I mean, that had to have been fun. He used a tornado of fire, a pillar of cloud. Wow, that had to have been just staggering. He used prophets so much so that their faces glowed and they had to wear veils to cover their faces because it freaked the people out to say, God's glory is so spectacular that we can't scrub it off of the prophet. It just follows him everywhere and it bothers us. He's spoken in so many ways in the past, but verse 2, but in these days, these last days, he doesn't speak through those anymore. I mean, those were all weak. Those were all secondary. And I'm thinking, pillar of fire is secondary? He's spoken to us by his Son. The Lord Jesus, this one whom he has appointed to be the heir of all things, through whom he created the world, Christ the agent of creation, Christ the recipient of creation, Christ the end, the telos, the goal of creation. Why do we exist for Christ? Mercy, this Christ, He is the radiance of the glory of God. You want to see what glory looks like? Don't look at Moses' face. Look at Jesus. That's where you see all of God's glory contained inside a man who is both God and man. At the same time, He is glory incarnate. He's the imprint of His nature. He is God he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Again, Fun to think about on the cross, the guys that are murdering him, their hearts are beating because Christ is sustaining them. Their synopses in their brain are firing because Christ is causing the laws of nature to continue working. He is giving them the energy to murder him. He sustains them. How merciful of a God is that? And then after having made purification for sins, he dies on the cross to pay for the sins of his people. Instead of just kind of, yeah, glorying in his victory, what does he do? He sits down at the right hand of majesty on high. He claims glory that belongs to him. And verse 4 declares, look, he is superior to the angels. You may not have caught it. It's been a running theme through the order of worship today. The angels are busy in the kingdom of God. They're busy praising Him, they're busy serving Him, they're busy declaring Him. And in here, the he, author of Hebrews uses them as a contrast to say, look, they're busy being beautiful and wonderful, but they are busy being less than Jesus. These creatures designed for glory, their, their very physiology reflects the presence of God. God. Creatures of fire and wings. And why do they have wings? They have wings so that they cover their faces so they don't behold God's glory. They cover their bodies so that God's glory does not behold them. And they fly so they don't even tread upon the ground with which He lives. These uh, unbelievable creatures of glory, these spectacular beings... I mean, again, remember, every time someone sees them, they, they just about drop dead in terror. These are not like little, oh, cute, cuddly babies. Little naked things with wings and bows. Oh, it makes me sick. Verse 5 For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son? I mean, these spectacular creatures of glory. What is he? Does any of them he ever says, oh, by the way, you creature of glory, you belong to me. You're my son. No. That's reserved for Christ and for Christ alone. Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. And he walks us through Old Testament quotes explaining Jesus is staggeringly wonderful. The angels are commanded to worship him in verse 6 and verse 7. They're illustrated as his servants. Verses 8 through, um, really, 12. All of creation points to Jesus. But then verse 13, he continues with this idea of the angels. Look, all of creation is designed to serve him. And to which of the angels has he ever said, look, I I make you my king? And 14 has the turning point. Okay, what is the function of angels? Why do they exist in creation? Well, interestingly, they're designed for the glory of God. And question rhetorically, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. Why are angels around? What do they do today? They are ministers of glory to God's people designed to be our helpers designed to be our ministers what does that look like? I I don't know I'm out on that one I can tell you what they do, I don't can't tell you how they do it but it's in light of this, this spectacular contrast that chapter 2 exists. It, it's framed out from the beginning. Look, God's spoken, but it all points to Jesus. He's the answer. And then, oh yeah, by the way, the most spectacular thing ever created? Oh yeah, that it, it is designed to serve the ones that Jesus even purchased. These unbelievable creatures of magnificence and terror. Oh, yeah, by the way, they're small and puny compared to Jesus. Remember, one of them kills 185,000 Assyrians in one night. That is legit power. Oh, yeah, by the way, they're servants for God's people. They're, They're small in comparison to Jesus. And all of that is important because as we get to chapter 2, it begins in the English with, therefore, so in light of all of this, in light of the Word of God being fulfilled in Christ, in light of the angels, these magnificent creatures being given as our servants because they serve our Savior, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. Lest we drift away from it. You see, the whole book of Hebrews is written uh, as a gigantic contrast. The author is using all of the Old Testament themes, about as many as you could probably think of. I mean, there's more. But to say, look, Jesus is better. Jesus is better than the angels. Jesus is better than Melchizedek. Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is better than, in fact, that's where you get the hall of faith at the end. like, look, list any good person you can think of, Jesus is better. But the reason why is because he's acknowledging from the very beginning the natural tendency of God's people. You see, the natural tendency of God's people is to begin well and end badly. The natural tendency of God's people, well, we could put it in kind of uh, standard cultural language, couldn't we? To rest on our laurels. To grow fat with success to grow sedentary and in victory, to grow lazy in grace. And he begins here with this tremendous challenge that's presented in light of who God is, in light of who Christ is, in light of what he has accomplished, in light of the ministry of the angels, even in light of all of that, people of God, be careful that you do not drift from the message that you have heard. I want to acknowledge just two things as we think through this portion of it, this great challenge to the the care of drifting that we do not drift away. One is that it is the natural tendency of the human heart and something for which we must account. We've been talking about the history of Reformation, even talking about uh, Presbyterian history in Sunday school, haven't we? You notice what happens, don't you? Every Presbyterian denomination steers left given enough time. Every branch of the church steers left given enough time. Every chance we go liberal, and I don't mean that liberal politically, I mean that liberal theologically, we drift from the good news, we grow confident or uh, fat and lazy, we, we lose our perspective, the natural the tendency of the human heart is to wander And that wandering is certainly further inflamed and encouraged. It's nourished and fed by the work of the devil himself. The Scriptures are clear that he is a roaring lion. He's uh, prowling about seeking to destroy the people of God. He has uh, spectacular schemes. He's had thousands of years to hone uh, those skills. He's not dumb. To think if he could be successful on Eve... I mean, she's brilliant. She's perfect, morally righteous. I mean, she's really the, the second most powerful thing in all creation, if you really want to be technical. And if he can get her, how much more is he going to get us? And I would then kind of maybe push on us a little bit more particularly in terms of this careful application here. The author of Hebrews is warning to say, look, in light of this great salvation that you have, be very careful that you don't neglect it and drift. Realistically, next year is going to be a big year for this church. We have officer nominations. By the way, the forms are there. Grab them, fill them out. We're going to increase the leadership size most likely. We're going to have, Lord willing, drawings for you in terms of what we're going to build up front. We're going to have new challenges and victories. We're going to have new successes and new failures. Next calendar year is going to be a biggie. You can't, I mean, look at the trajectory of the church and it's going to be something. May it never be, may it never be that the greater we have success, the faster we drift. May it never be. I mean, may it be that as we grow and as we continue to thrive as a church, when the Lord appoints times of suffering for us, may it be that our message, (coughs) that our backbone, that our, our mission, our drive, our focus, pick whatever leadership terminology you want, I don't care. May it be that we are occupied with Christ May it be that we don't get pulled away to endless genealogies, silly myths, cultural moments, arguments of the time, the world out there. May it be that we are filled with Christ. I'm going to suggest that one particular danger that I think is going to exist for this body is going to be the danger to sacrifice the best for the sake of the good and great. By that I mean is to busy ourselves with good and great things. To busy ourselves with family. To busy ourselves with a new church building that we're going to have to work a lot and very hard at. To busy ourselves with giving, which by the way, you need to do that. To busy ourselves with taking care of the children of the church. Praise God, we've got them coming out our ears. To busy ourselves with the go-getters, the golden oldies, our brunch together. To busy ourselves with good and great things and to forget the best. I love that the text here isn't warning about backsliding. It's not warning about outright rejection. That comes in chapter 6. It's not warning about immorality yet. It's not warning about any of those. What is the, what is the first warning in the book? It's drifting. Slowly getting pulled away. You remember that when you were young, right? The first time you went in the sea to go play in the ocean when the waves were up a little bit and you go out and you go body surfing and you're like, this is fantastic. And you're out there for like half an hour and you look up and mom and dad are not there. They're like way down there. And you're like, when did that happen? How did that happen? I was so busy with good things. How did the drift take place? how did I get pulled away from the place I need to be from my home, from my family? May it never be that we as a church do that same kind of thing where in four or five years or four or five months that we kind of wake up and shake our head and go, how did, I, where, how did we get here? Where's Christ? Where's, where's the gospel? Where's my undying preoccupation with Him? And his work. Where? May it never be. He's going to provide a couple of arguments for why this drifting is bad. You know, it was two weeks ago. I preached on, doesn't matter, you get converted at the last moment, praise God. Salvation is salvation. I mean, here's the counterpoint. For since the message declared by angels... Interestingly, here explaining that uh, the law is delivered through the angels. They have a, a, a participatory role in revelation that we don't fully understand. The way that we get God's revelation is through the angels in a way that I don't fully get. For since the message declared by the angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? You see, the sermon two weeks ago emphasized, man, if you're in, you're in. Praise God. Salvation is glorious. His grace is astounding. And all of those things are absolutely true. But here we're going to see the other anchoring kind of foundation, the anchoring truth is that, but your actions still matter. You can't just say, oh, look, Jesus is wonderful. His grace is fantastic. I've been forgiven. I've been redeemed. Now I can go live however I want to live. And we can be whatever kind of church we want to be, and we can do whatever we want to do. Consequence-free. We talked about that in Sunday school today, didn't we? This denomination being birthed from a mother denomination that was saying, do what you want to do, be who you want to be, live how you want to live. No. No, that's not the case. Actions have consequences. For an unbeliever, if you were an unbeliever in the room, your actions have consequences. And unfortunately for you right now, those consequences are you earn hell. I don't, I'm not delighted by that fact. I mean, it's not my favorite topic to preach on. But if you don't know Christ... Every moment of every day all you do is heap condemnation and judgment upon yourself. Your actions have consequences. You further damn yourself by how you live. You need forgiveness. If if you find yourself in that situation where you don't know Christ and you're afraid of that, please talk to me after worship. I love to talk. I love that conversation. It's my favorite. But just similarly, I guess, for believers, our actions have consequences too. Now, they don't contribute to whether or not you go to heaven. So I preached that sermon two weeks ago and not this week. And I'm preaching this sermon this week and not two weeks ago. The order is imperative. You go to heaven by Christ and Christ alone. And once you get there, once you are a saint, your actions have real consequences. You live in a way that dishonors the Lord. He loves you so much. He's going to spank you. And his spankings hurt far worse than mom and dad's ever did. He loves you so much. He's never going to let you go. He loves you so much that he will not turn a blind eye to our actions. It's interesting how you see the trajectory here, isn't it? You begin with drifting a little a little aim a little bit of misdirection, a little bit of just kind of being pulled along with the tide. And then what's the next point the author turns to? Oh, yeah, by the way, how you live is going to have consequences. Why? Because when you begin to drift in that focus, you begin to drift in your emphasis. What's the consequence? You're going to drift in how you live. You begin to stop being captivated by the Lord Jesus. It will have consequences in how you live. you can't get away from it. I don't say that to scare us or to, uh, as a a threat in any way, but more is uh, to recognize that it makes this life incredibly important. You realize the days that God gives you now have real and genuine consequences. Don't waste them. Use them well. He's so gracious. He gives us days to spend on him. How are you spending the days he's given you? When I was young, I had an allowance for my parents. It was not much. But I remember talking to my parents, and you could kind of see see what's important by how a kid spends his money. For me, I could tell you exactly what was important when I first started getting my allowance. The immediate. (laughs) What did I buy? Whatever was in front of me when I had the money. (laughs) Didn't matter if I really liked it. Didn't matter if I cared about it. I spent it on the immediate. You could see the values that I held by how I spent my time, how I spent my money. How are you spending yours? Your days, your time, your money, your energy, your efforts? Because, again, what's the author of Hebrews saying? Look, chapter 1, Christ is the best. Christ is the best. Chapter 2, how do you live in light of that? How are we going to escape if we neglect such a great salvation? There you go for the unbeliever. Why is it a big deal? I mean, why is the danger of drifting such a big deal? Why is it that uh, the actions having consequences is a big deal in light of drifting? Why does any of this matter? Well, he begins and explains, really kind of brings that full circle. Why is it so important? Well, because it was declared first by the Lord. And it was attested by the early church, those of us that heard. And God is also borne witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributing, uh, distributed according to His will. Why is it so important? Putting it in the here and now, because every success and victory and gift and joy that we have here at Christ Ridge is proof of all of the other stuff. All of the laughs last night, the tears at the Christmas party where people were like having to hold their head to catch their breath because they're laughing so hard at Nate. (laughs) (laughs) All of those things are proof of the truth of Christ. The kindness you show one another is proof of the truth of Christ. The gifts that God gives and we use, you when you pray in private, me while I preach in public. The service that's given to one another, the deacons when they exercise their kindness behind the scenes. All of those various things that happen are proof. Look, Christ exists. He's working in his church. It's imperative that you live accordingly because you declare, look, he's the real deal every time you do. You see, the danger of drifting, the danger of drifting in our, our thought and in how we live is that we then bring shame to the name of Christ because every element of our life is designed to be a testimony to what He has done. As we continue to grow and flourish as a church, which I fully expect we will do, the great danger is that we would drift in our thinking And our love and our obedience would begin to wander, disobedience might flare up. But the ultimate problem being that all of the victories and successes that this church has are not a testimony to this church. They're not a testimony to the excellence of the session, though I will tell you it's an excellent session. It's not a testimony to the excellence of the diaconate, though it's an excellent diaconate. It's not a testimony to how faithfully our ladies pray. You know what they do? I know. It's a testimony to the faithfulness of God. It's a testimony to the work of Christ. It's a testimony to the glory of what God has done. It's a testimony to Him. May it never be that we drift in our love, that we stray in our obedience, and ultimately either shame the name of Christ or attempt to become glory thieves, stealing that which belongs to Him. Because our goal, our delight, our joy, you caught it at the beginning of the service, is to praise the triune God. May it be that as the building appears and the chairs fill and eventually suffering comes, we know it will. May it be that that is our story. That God is glorified in the salvation that we display. May it be. Let's pray. Our Father, we confess our sin in how easily we can be led astray. We confess our sin that so easily we drift and wander. We confess our sin that we are at our core glory thieves trying to honor ourselves as uh, as opposed to honoring you. And Father, we thank you for the redeeming work of Jesus on our behalf. We thank you for the gifts that he gives to the church. And we thank you that every joy and delight that we have here in you is a testimony to your work and your faithfulness. May it be that this church would be found faithful today, tomorrow, next year, next decade, next hundred years. May it be that we are found faithful for Christ's sake. Amen. Amen.